1 Corinthians chapter 3. <clears throat> now obviously we've uh, been looking at this book, uh, a troubled church that Paul had established approximately three years earlier. There's been controversy, difficulties, and reports of less than stellar um, activity among the group. And you know, we had been looking at, in chapter 2, there was this grand comparison between the wisdom of man and the wisdom of Christ. But now, Paul turns back again and he expands even further. And he talks more about the divisions in the church, as the header in your, in your Bible probably tells you. These first four verses, um, well, let's, I'll just read them and then I'll give you my little intro. But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. But even now, you're not yet ready, for you're still of the flesh. While there, is, for one, while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? For one says, for when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are not you being merely human? Now, we've taken this little phrase, the idea of having milk and not meat, uh, as almost cliched. We use the phraseology and the terminology rather regularly. I want to look at it a little bit more and relate to you some of the fun, uh, some of the fun sermons that I got to listen to and some of the books I got to read. Uh, for example, one guy titled his sermon on this passage, "Stop Being a Baby." Okay, and then you had Alster Begg come along and he said, "So." It's okay to be an infant. I mean, we all were one at one time. We know what to expect. We know that they're full of self. Their universe is only as far as they can reach. Um, you have to feed them. They will let you know when they're hungry if you can figure out that's what they want. Um, you also have to change them regularly because they can't do it for themselves. So Paul is using this metaphor saying, it's okay to be a baby. The problem is, is when you're an adult and you still act like a baby. And that's what he's talking about here. It's been three years, approximately. If you remember, Paul was in that church for 18 months, then he left. So if you add that extra time, we're talking almost four years. So let's take today's calendar and jump back to 2015. And we have had all that time. Now think of what you were doing in 2015. It may have been very similar to what you're doing now, or you've had dramatic changes in your life. But you look back, 2015 to 2019, are you the same person, spiritually? If you are, then you're not growing. You're not making the effort. Then Alsterbeg, <laughs> I mean, I was laughing out loud when I was here listening to it. He said, you know, he's talking about the internal spiritual life, 
But what if we were to wear our spiritual age? And he says, I'm staring at this wonderful congregation. And there's some probably some wonderful 55-year-old ladies that are sitting there in their nappies with the little, you know, safety pin in the front. And then we have a 17-year-old who looks like John Calvin with his long beard and is so wise. Do we really want to wear our spirituality? Because that's what Paul is addressing here. He's saying, come on. You're not babies anymore. It's okay to, to drink milk in the beginning. In fact, I would say if you're at a restaurant and you're having a nice steak and a nice small family sits down in the booth next to you and they have a small infant and you think, huh, you cut a little bite of steak and you walk it over to the baby. Watch the mom. Uh, watch out for the mom. <laughs> she will not be happy because that baby cannot digest that food. In fact, it may be toxic to them and it might kill them. At the same time, if you are 20 years old and all you drink is milk, you're probably emaciated and you've had stunted growth. That's the metaphor here. You see, in chapter 2, verse 6, he talked about, yet among the mature we impart wisdom. And that word mature in chapter 2, verse 6 is the word teleos. To be complete or mature. That's why they, they years ago, Tom, actually, I think you came up with the name to name, or maybe it was a group. Who's the elders? Yeah, the elders to create a category of teaching, and that's been revived here of late, to give a name for all these various classes to help people grow, to help them be mature, to help them be complete. These people have no excuse. Now, it's interesting, you know, Paul uses this child metaphor uh, two other times in 1 Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians 13, 11, he said, when I was a child, I spoke as a child. I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child, but when I became a man, I gave up childish things. And in chapter 14, verse 20, he says, Brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking be teleos, be mature. Now, you've got some interesting Greek language things going on here. First, this isn't, this isn't necessarily Greek, but it's something to be observed. First, who is he addressing in the third word in this first sentence? First verse. Brothers. Brothers. Meaning the church. Meaning the converted. He's not speaking to the secular world, the unconverted. He's speaking to the converted. We ha can't, can't forget that because it'll have some implications on some more of the study we have here. But I could not address you as pneumatikos or pneumatikois. If you remember, we had a big deal at the end of chapter 2 last week where we were talking about the variations on the spiritual man, the spiritual person the pneumatikos, the pneumatikoi, the pneumatikoin, 
uh, all those variations. Right now, he starts with Numa, Spirit, the Spirit-filled person or the spiritual people, but you are people of the flesh. That is spelled Sarkinois, S-A-R-K-I-N-O-I-S. The root word for flesh in Greek is sarx, and that's used frequently by Paul. So this is a longer variation of that. But then it it's added if you get down there in verse 3. So it says, So as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ, I fed you with milk, not solid food. You weren't ready for it. Even now you're not ready, for you are still of the flesh. And it's a different word. This would mean flesh. Now notice there's just one letter difference between these two words. Sarkinoi and sarkikoi. And that in English, technically, you should have flesh and fleshly. The first meaning literal flesh. Just pinch your skin. That's what he's meaning. You are people of the flesh, like your infants but you're acting fleshly. It's a behavioristic word, a behavior-oriented word, rather than just simply talking about flesh. Now, any of you have a King James Bible or a variation of that? What is the word commonly that we grew up with, if we grew up with the King James, was translated here? Not as flesh, but as carnal. So the idea of the carnal Christian came into our, our language and our, um, our understanding because of the translation in the King James Bible where it says you are still carnal. What does that mean? I mean, I stepped into this massive landmine uh, unbeknownst to me in the study because you might read it well it's kind of obvious well no it's not obvious because you have a raging controversy among Christian scholars of whether or not Paul is describing three different types of people you have the natural man that's in chapter 2 verse 14 the sukitikos the spiritual man, the pneumatikos, and the carnal Christian, the sarkikoi. Is he teaching that there's three different kinds? And if so, what's wrong with it? Or are they saved? Are they really saved or not? This uh, comes, cuts a little, not quite to the heart, but 
you, if you remember, it's now been 30 years, uh, uh, John MacArthur had a book called The Gospel According to Jesus that talked a lot about lordship salvation. What does it mean to be saved and declaring Jesus as Lord in your life? Can you have someone who is a carnal Christian be truly saved? I'm not saying that's his message, but it's you can see where it starts getting a little interesting. What? I don't have an answer for this, other than that I just explored it a little bit more and got more confused the more I got into it. <clears throat> and typically, the more people I read, the more variations on the theme I got, and then I was really confused because I'm trying to do this in a very short period of time to prepare it for this class. I'd say this is a conversation you could spend the rest of your life studying. Mm -hmm. I would say first, these people, these people who are still of the flesh, are acting like non-Christians. They have made a profession. They are in the church. And you have to remember, this church was a very spiritual church. They were worshiping. It got a little crazy during their worship service which Paul addresses, but they were there. These were people that were showing up. They weren't just the periodic, you know, showing up for Easter and Christmas. Oh, right, they didn't have Easter and Christmas back then, but you get my point. Secondly, they are fleshly, and this is biblical, they are carnal because they lack spiritual growth. There are two passages in other parts of Scripture that address this issue of milk and meat. One is Hebrews chapter 5, verse 12 through 14. You might want to write it in the margin of your paper or your Bible. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. But solid food is for the teleos, for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. That's an interesting phrase. We'll break that out when we actually study Hebrews. But the idea of constant practice? You don't know if you got it right the first time. But after you've done it 12 or 13 or 14 or 15 times, you start recognizing the evil one for what it is. And you're able to combat it. The first time, it might have caught you off guard. You also have 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter uh, 2, verse 2. says, Like newborn infants, long for the spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up to salvation if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. And then a third observation, if you look carefully at the middle part of verse 3, you are still of the flesh, for while there is jealousy and strife among you, you are acting just like the world. You're behaving in a human way. Now, came across a couple quotations, and I'll read them to you <clears throat> by Bob Deffenbaugh. He said, some can be called carnal Christians. Carnal Christians are fleshly Christians. Believers 
in Jesus Christ, whose thinking and actions are rooted in the flesh rather than in the spirit. Spiritual Christians are those who mortify the flesh and walk uh, imperfectly in accordance with the promptings and power of the Holy Spirit. Carnal Christians are not proficient in the scriptures because the wisdom of his God is not known through fleshly wisdom, but through the spirit. Spiritual Christians seeks to plummet the depths of the wisdom of God revealed in his scripture. And then he makes this statement. Salvation is a radical change. It's not merely merely adding Christ to your life. This is where I... uh, I should say I um, disagree is a nice way of putting it with a lot of preachers and teachers that are out there. They make it sound so easy. All you have to do is say this sentence and you're in. You got the card. You have the key. You're now going to heaven. And there's, we will never ask anything of you ever again. Except your tithe. But that's another card. There's a, a danger to this. Bob Moffat, our, you know, our fellow church member here who runs the Harvest Foundation, um, he has a new book that he has redone. Uh, he had another title of it, but it's now called Evangelism Without Discipleship. And what he does is he takes a look at the Great Commission saying, is it just to go out and spread the gospel? Oh, no, it's to make disciples. You can bring them in. But we have failed to do the other part. And it's a clarion call to say, let's, let's rethink this a little bit. Because we're maybe missing the mark. If you remember years ago, I think it was Willow Creek, um, they apologized, this was 10, 12 years ago, they apologized to the Christian community for not discipling them. Since we were all about church growth, adding numbers. And we had 15, 20,000 people here on every, every weekend. And the percentage of actual believers who actually really understand the scriptures is, is, is pathetic. We have not done the right thing. As Deffenbaugh writes, salvation is a radical change. It's not merely adding Christ to your life. It's not just inviting Christ into your life. Salvation is a change from death to life, from darkness to light. It's accompanied by repentance, turning away from all that we once depended on for eternal life, from all that we once held precious as non-believers. Salvation turns one's life, one's values, thinking. It turns it upside down and inside out. And then D.A. Carson writes, but there are... There are still infants who display their wretched immaturity in the way they complain if you give them more than milk. Not for them solid knowledge of Scripture. Not for them mature theological reflection. Not for them growing in perceptive Christian thought. They want nothing more than another round of choruses and a simple message. Something that won't challenge them to think, to examine their lives, to make choices and to grow in their knowledge and adoration of the living God. So, if you turn your page, your handout, 
you'll find a chart that I came across in a brand new book that I had read a review of and thought, oh, that looks interesting. So I bought the book. It's called The Unsaved Christian. Wow, isn't that an interesting juxtaposition? By an author I'd never heard of before. I think it's his first book named Dean Insera, I-N-S-E-R-R-A. The subtitle is Reaching Cultural Christianity with the Gospel. And he defines cultural Christianity in some ways that I look at him at what Paul is paralleling here with the carnal Christian or the fleshly Christian. And he has each chapter, as you can see in this chart on the left-hand column, you have, he defines these various types of Christian or Christianity and has full chapters on each one. Is this Moody? Hmm? This is Moody Publishing, which that was the other thing that jumped out at me. This wasn't... Um, a commercially driven publisher. This was someone very biblically grounded. And I, I, and I was reading through it going, oh, that's really interesting. Do I agree with him? Do I disagree with him? Is he saying they're Christian or is he saying they're not Christian? I'm not sure. But the identification is dramatic. I mean, we can, you know, some of these we go, oh yeah, yeah, I, I know about that kind. Like the country club Christian. They are self-focused. The church happens to be the social club of their preference. And they mistake the, the gospel for comfort. And they avoid messy things like sin and sinners. But he doesn't stop there because that would be too easy. It's too easy to identify those that you can say, oh, they're less than spiritual. He says, how do you talk to them? What starting points can you have in a conversation with someone that you've identified as a potential person within this class, if you want to call it, and then what is the gospel remedy for this problem and this difficulty? I found this chart fascinating. I'm not going to go through it all. It's just something that you can take with you, meditate on, read. Um, I mean, it's just literally in the very back of the book. I mean, it's in the very, very last pages. But then he goes into the book itself with questions and reflections on basically how to witness to those who think they are Christian, like most Americans. Most Americans, when they're polled, saying, oh yeah, I'm Christian. Or they might say, I'm, re I'm spiritual, not religious. Or some variation of that. And there's this... Um, I still go back to my time in construction where guys were saying, hey, you know, it doesn't matter what you believe as long as you're not hurting anybody. Okay, I mean, where do, you, where do you turn that statement around and say, no, there's actually something called sin. There's actually called something in your own life. You might not be hurting other people, but you're killing yourself. I mean, how do you have that conversation this book ultimately is a book of evangelism, um, which I thought was very different. But in the context of this idea of the infant, the one who is not trying to grow, and I think maybe that's where Paul's emphasis is. It's not so much a label, because we have to be very careful about labels. You start creating labels, you start simplifying things too much, and even that's where I struggle with some parts of this book. As he's 
in an attempt to create labels and simplifying, he also then, because not everyone falls into the various boxes. The one thing that Alsterbeck said that really struck me, and so, you know, I'm not, like I say, whenever I teach, I don't claim originality. I'm, I'm just here as a synthesizer of all the stuff that I'm, I'm studying. And he said something, and just, it's like a pole axe between the eyes that I wish everyone in every church everywhere would listen to and hear. I'm going to try to quote him, but I'm going to, because I didn't write it down, I was just listening. If you think that all you need to grow as a Christian is to listen to me on Sunday, you're in serious trouble. Wow. What pastor says that? I mean, pastors, typically, they're the ones who, you know, they're tasked with the ability to disseminate the truths of scriptures, of uh, the scripture, and people listen and learn. And he said, if that's all you're doing, you're a fleshly Christian. I'm not the answer. If you're not going home and reading good Christian books, if you're not going home and reading your scripture, if you're not going home and following up on what I have talked about to make sure I got it right, because sometimes I don't. And I think about, uh, you know, I, I know I'm preaching to the choir here, but this is being recorded so other people may hear this. So. You're coming to this class, you hear from me. You, we all then move into a worship service and we hear from Pastor Jim. And you might think, that's all I need. That's good enough. Oh, you might even have a small group during the week. That's also very good. But it's almost this idea that if your focus is not in growing your Christian life and Christian walk, you're in danger serious danger. came across a, a book, and I've heard about it a billion times, never really looked at it that carefully. But a couple weeks ago, I thought, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to buy this one. It's on sale, so it'd be, be worth it. It's from the 1600s by Thomas Watson, called The Body of Divinity. If you don't own it, you need to. It's only 300 pages. It's the very first book, The Banner of Truth, ever published in the 50s. And this hardcover is on sale on Amazon as of this morning, I checked, for $10.99. You don't have an excuse. It's not like this is a $500 hardcover that you have to sell your car to buy. <laughs> it's a hardcover for $11. I go, that's not possible. It's got to be a mistake. But no, it's what it is right now. It could go up, you know, in the next 10 minutes for all we know. Um, but what it is, is a exposition of Westminster's Shorter Catechism from a great period. You may think, okay, that sounds dull and boring. Well, the idea is you don't read this book by Saturday. You read this book by Saturday the year 2029 
you spend the next 10 years absorbing what's in here. For example, the first question in the Westminster Catechism is what is the chief end of man? Anybody know the answer? To glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Yay, I got a good class. <laughs> now, he goes into glorify God and enjoy Him forever. He spends 15 pages on glorify God. 15 pages. You're like, okay. So, you might even ask yourself, or I would, if we were in a different context, I would say, as a class, let's come up with the ways we can glorify God. How many do you think you could come up with? And what does that mean? I mean, seriously, how do you glorify the creator of the universe? How do you do that? I mean, that alone as an exercise is one of those expansions of your spiritual walk. And to give you the answer, he has 16 answers. 16 different ways you can glorify God. It's amazing. It's devotional. And then he has a paragraph on each one of them. That type of work is not milk. It's solid food. And it's only 300 pages. It's not like it's this massive tome that you particularly used to see are used to seeing from the Puritans. It's actually fairly short by comparison to many others. Well, that's my commercial for books. But you're getting my point. No, I don't have an answer of whether or not there is such a thing as a carnal Christian, someone who is, has made this statement of faith we may observe them, but they have never made the attempt to go beyond their initial enthusiasm. And that's dangerous. And Paul is absolutely hammering these people, saying, the church, you are full of this. You're babies. Stop being a baby. So he goes on. He, you know, he tries to expand on this. We have verse 5. The first word is interesting. The first word is what, not who. Wouldn't you expect that to be the first word? So who's Apollos and who is Paul? No, he doesn't say that. He said, what then is Apollos? What is Paul? Brilliant way of redirecting it away from the personality to the activity. What are they? They are servants. They are not the end. You shouldn't be saying, I am of Apollos, I am of Paul. It doesn't matter. They are servants to God. They are servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. And he has this whole planting metaphor through the end of verse 9. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. In other words, you know, Paul started the church. Apollos came along later, this great teacher, and he kept watering it, but 
the whole time, any growth that happened was because of God, not because of the efforts of those who were tasked to do it. Well, let's just take the metaphor to its fullest extent. So you want to try to grow something in your garden. You will plant the seed, you'll water it, you'll fertilize it, you'll weed, you'll prune, and you may even harvest. And then you do it again. Did you create the growth? Of course not. You know, I, you can think of the, the picture of a, uh, a small child and I, I have this picture of my own in, in elementary school. We were all given seeds and you know, I have a little cup of dirt and we would put it in there and we would water it. And every day we would stare at it <laughs> and nothing would happen. I, oh, you can't will it to grow. All you can do is tend it. And then one day, whoop, this little green sprout. Oh, oh my goodness, look what I did. <laughs> that, that's what we always do. Look what I did. No. You were a servant. You were faithful. You tended it. But then, of course, there were others in the class who their little cup was bone dry because they never bothered. And, of course, nothing ever happened. But the growth is not yours. It's actually God's. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything. Only God gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's co-workers, fellow workers. You are God's field and God's building. And then he, from verse 10 to verse 15, he changes the metaphor from planting to building. According to the grace of God, you have to circle the phrase grace of God because that becomes a theme throughout all of 1 Corinthians and all of Scripture, actually. But is the grace of God given to me like a sophos, Sophia. It's the word wise. But we have it translated as the word skilled. Isn't that interesting? He's comparing wisdom to the word skilled when placed in the context of building. And then it says the master builder. That is actually the Greek word architekton or architect. Isn't that cool? If you're architects, you're in the Bible. The first part, archi, A-R-C-H-I, means chief. And the second half of the word, tekton, means wood builder or stonemason. So an architecton is someone who is the lead builder. Now, if you've ever been on job sites or you're, you're familiar with construction, there's usually a chief, what would you call them? Superintendent. Superintendent or the, the person who's overseeing the remodel. Performer. Performing. Hmm? The general contractor. General contractor. There you go. Now, they may be aware of the fact that electricity needs to be in the building, but you don't see the general contractor doing the work. He hires the architecton, the chief electrician, 
to do that work. He's overseeing it, making sure this person does this person. You don't hire the carpet layer to do your electricity. You can. You get what you pay for. <laughs> and there are some who are handymen who can do all sorts of things. Like our son-in-law, he could do a billion things. He can put the wood flooring in your house. He can redo your plumbing. He can do, uh, he's just multi-skilled. But not everyone is like that. There are some who this is their specific thing. So I started thinking about it and I, I ran out of time, but I meant to talk to our son-in-law Dave and say, because it says here, I have laid a foundation and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care of how he builds on it. For no one can lay a foundation other than what is laid, which is Jesus Christ. And I wanted to ask him, and I'll ask any in this room who have ever been involved in a construction project, have you ever tried to build something where the foundation was built wrong? <laughs> have you? You have. What happened? Disaster. Disaster. Like what? Well, everything does not fits. Nothing fits. So everything had to be altered. So was it a was it unlevel or was it just missized? Both. <laughs> so how critical then is it for that foundation to be laid correctly? It's absolute. It's everything, right? For those of you who who are involved in this, yes, go ahead. I used to have a woodworking business and I was hired by a lady who had built her own cabinets wanted me to supply drawers and doors. There was not, it was a kitchen. There was not one cabinet that was square or plumb. Some of them went front to back this way, some went front to back this way. Oh my goodness. All of them were racked. And I had to build not just doors, but drawers that would function in and out. And I had to skew every single one of the pieces wrongly to match her not using square and plumb. It was a nightmare. a nightmare. What an analogy of trying to live your life without Christ. Exactly. And that's what he's trying to say. Because more than likely, there are planters and builders in his congregation. And someone goes, oh yeah, remember Carl's story? <laughs> Golly. Oh yeah, sorry Sally, you're still in the congregation. But next time, ask Carl to buy the, build them first. From the, from the ground floor, rather than trying to jerry-rig it, to force it to make it work. Now, I have, I've told this story before, and I couldn't remember exactly the last time I had, but I was working construction as a college student, and it was we were building a large uh, apartment complex down on Baseline, which I will never live in, as <laughs> <laughs> I saw it being built, <laughs> and the, the attitude. But imagine a building the size of our, um, our fellowship hall as a two-story apartment complex. And it, it was all framed, so two stories is framed. And I hear the boss, the foreman, shouted out, Bobby, come over here. So I trot over there. I was working in the, uh, I was kind of a helper, but also I worked in the, uh, the sawmill area. And I also uh, drove the forklift. So I was kind of the gopher guy. And he comes over there, and standing next to him was the chief framer. 
And they were looking at this two-story building. And he said, Bobby, is that building straight? And so imagine this guy here, this guy here, and we both went. <laughs> and I went, no, it's not. He goes, doggone, it's tilting. It's going to fall over. What? Uh, what? What do we do? And he goes, okay, get the forklift. So I get the forklift. It's a two-ton forklift. I ratchet the tongs up to its absolute height, and I drove the tongs into the side of the building and pushed. And there was a, a guy on the top corner with a plumb line. <laughs> and he was going, a little bit more! I mean, this is a massive building in wood frame, so it's tons of weight. And finally he stop! I stop, I'm holding it with the, the forklift. It was like ants around the rest of the building, putting in you know, diagonal frames, tapping it all in to give it security so that it wouldn't fall over. Like I said, I will never live there. Uh, um, somehow when they built it, they didn't think about um, supporting it as they built it higher. That would have been natural. They should have been putting in cross beams the whole time to handle the weight. They just let the weight of the wood hold it up with their nails. Jesus is saying, if you don't have Jesus as your foundation, it's all going to fall apart. Galatians chapter 1, verses 6 through 9. I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you to the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven would preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As I've said before and I say it again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you have received, let him be accursed. Paul was dealing with that in the Galatian church where Judaizers were coming in and saying, you need more than Jesus. You need to have the law too. Here we are over in 1 Corinthians and people are getting all twisted up because they are not deep in the Word. They are not truly understanding and are easily swayed. And he's trying to say, your foundation is this. And then he says, now if anyone builds the foundation with gold, silver, and precious stones, wood, hay, and straw, now it's interesting, that's just one long line of stuff, but if you put a diagonal between the first three and the last three, you have lasting, long-lasting, wonderful things and temporary things all put together as a comparison. If you build on this foundation with wood, hay, and straw, you have the story of the three little pigs where the big bad wolf just comes down and just blows it all down. Poof! Or what is the story of building the house on the sand? It just gets washed away. 
You know, there's a, obviously we know if you follow the news, a major hurricane headed for Florida and you know, people are batting, batting down the hatches and they should. When Hurricane Andrew hit Florida, Southern Florida in 1992, after the destruction, they changed all the building codes. In 1964, with the Alaska earthquake that we were a part of as a family, after the earthquake was over, they changed all the building codes. So now when an earthquake hits Alaska, all the buildings just go, hey, we're having fun. They don't fall over. They're built to flex with the movement of the earth because there's so many small earthquakes. I mean, nothing can stop the big one. But they're built <coughs> to withstand. Each one's work will be manifest for the day, capital D, meaning the day of the Lord. We'll bring it to light, we'll disclose it, and it will be revealed by fire. And the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. In Romans 14.10 it says, We will all stand before the judgment seat. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. And everyone goes, oh goody, I get a mansion. It says that, you know, in the Father's house are many mansions. Well, that's a mistranslation, by the way, in case you didn't know that. The Greek is, in my Father's house there are many dwelling places, not mansions. Because otherwise, how, would, how big would his house have to be to have mansions inside his house? That would be kind of odd. And everyone thinks, oh, you know, I'm going to, I will only be a Christian because I will be rewarded. It says so in the Bible. I'm going to get stuff. Really? You left all your stuff behind when you died. God isn't going to give you more stuff. And it's, it, could it be that there's an allusion to what the reward is in chapter 4, verse 9? I'm sorry, chapter 4, verse 5. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. You will, be, you will receive praise. You want to go, is that all? You mean God's only going to say, well done, good and faithful servant? Is that not enough? What is the motivation? The motivation is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. The motivation is not so what we can get. His point is to say, the work that you do will either last or it won't. It could burn up in a fire, in the fire of trial, or it will have that firm, solid footing, which is Christ, and then will survive all attacks. Verse 16, do you not know that your God's temple and the God's spirit dwells in you? By the way, the yous in verses 16 and 17 are plural. A lot of us read this singular as if Paul is talking to us as an individual. He's talking to the group. So he says, do you not know that you are God's temple? Very interesting little Greek tidbit. The normal word for temple is hieros. And it 
it's used all over. Anytime the word temple pretty much is used in the New Testament, it's the word hieros. But that's not the word Paul uses here. He uses the word nows. I go, so what's the difference? It still means temple. It still means, it literally means dwelling. You are God's dwelling. In the Old Testament, in the Septuagint, when the Old Testament is translated into Greek, any time that they speak of the Holy of Holies, they use this word, not this one. Paul is intentionally saying where the Holy of Holies is, according to the Old Testament, is where? It's where God dwells. His presence came down on the temple and went into the Holy of Holies. And he's saying here, you are God's Holy of Holies. He is dwelling in you. God's Spirit dwells in you. And if anyone destroys God's temple, God's going to destroy him. For God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. Now, you can go all sorts of variations come and, can, can, can come and go on this. Um, but I would just say a wonderful principle to think of is that when we understand that it is Christ in us. God's not kidding when He says that. He's not saying it as some devotional metaphor to make us feel better. When we become one with Christ, God dwells in us. And we become His dwelling place. And if all you act as if you just need to have, a, as Dea Carson put it, another chorus and a nice devotional that doesn't challenge me, then you're not going deep enough. You're not treating this with respect. I mean, when we go into our time of worship, <coughs> I was thinking about this last week. <coughs> it's a great quote from Annie Dillard <coughs> who says, that when you enter a church service, do you have any sort of, any idea what sort of power you so blithely invoke? We are meeting, we are presenting ourselves to the God of the universe. We are there to glorify Him, not whether or not it's a good sermon that made me feel good, or the, the music was just perfect today. You know what? If it was cacophonous, it doesn't matter. We are the dwelling place of God. And if you play around with it, you end up like Ananias and Sapphira. Acts chapter 5, verse 1. Who messed around, lied to God, and they did not survive the encounter. Verse 18, let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks he's wise in this age, let him become a fool. Then he may become wise. For the wisdom 
of this world is folly with God. As it is written in Job 5.13, He catches the wise in their craftiness. And again in Psalm 94.11, The Lord knows the thoughts of the wise that they are futile. And Paul actually mistranslates, misquotes it. It's actually the Lord knows the thoughts of man. And he adds the phrase the wise to uh, add to his statement here. Psalm. Psalm 94.11 Let no one boast in men. Whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future don't boast in any of those things because the second half of verse 21 all things are yours as William Barclay says at this point Paul's prose suddenly takes wings and he becomes a lyric and it becomes a lyric of passion and poetry all things are yours End of verse 22. All are yours, and you are Christ's, and Christ is God's. You think of Romans 8.28, when it says, you know, some things work together for good. No. All things work together for good to those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. He says here, all things are yours. You are Christ, and Christ is God's. Can you imagine being in that Corinthian church and the repentance that must have washed over some of those who heard this message, realizing, yeah, I've been mailing it in for three years. I need to get serious about this. I mean, Christ is in me, the hope of glory. I am God's dwelling place, the Holy of Holies. If it's the Holy of Holies, I got to make sure it's clean. I can't let it be sullied and dirty. It's something that must be a wonderful place for God to dwell. And in Him, all things, as one pastor put it, he goes, you like this church building? Huh, I do too. Guess what? It's yours. Not mine. It's God's. And God says, guess what? It's all yours. Everything. So when trials, difficulties, challenges come into life, we take that and realize that if the foundation cannot be broken, then we can overcome any of it because God is with us, dwells in us, and everything around it is ours. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for our time together. This word is so rich. There's so much more we could go into. We could spend an hour just reading in the Psalms on wisdom, the, the glory, the wisdom your wisdom can bring to us. And the admonition here is to stop messing around, to stop being divisive, to stop 
saying this is, this is only mine and not yours, but it is ours. Through you, all have become our gift to live and to grow. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.